Genesis chapter 4, we started last week looking at uh, Cain and Abel, uh, the first two sons of Adam and Eve. Um, we um, threw out the phrase, if chapter 3 was the root of sin, then chapter 4 is the fruit of sin. That's not my term. I grabbed that from another pastor, um, so don't claim it to be mine. But I think that that plays out really well. I think that that's actually a good description. We talked a few weeks ago as Pastor Josh was preaching that as we looked at the consequences of sin, as sin entered the picture with Adam and Eve, that in the midst of that, that God actually reveals to Adam and Eve His plan of salvation, that one day a deliverer would come, a Savior would come, and would deal a death blow to sin and to Satan, and would bring salvation to those who would believe. And we talked last week about the fact that Adam and Eve very well could have thought that Cain, their first son, was in fact that promised deliverer. And we talked about the fact that that anticipation clearly was dispelled or quickly dispelled um, as this man grew up. We learned about the fact that Cain was a farmer, that Abel was a shepherd, that they brought sacrifices and offerings to God at a particular time, at an appointed time. We even talked about the fact, and we've mentioned this, but we need to continue to kind of remind ourselves that there are periods of time that pass here. It's not just like um, day after day these events happen. Um, you know, we see that in the fact that you know, it wasn't just overnight that Adam and Eve, you know, were intimate, and then all of a sudden she has a son, and then all of a sudden they're farming and shepherding. Like, there, there are periods of time where these men grew up. They, um, you know, became skilled at, at, at their occupations, that there was a time at which God says, look, you are to come and bring offerings to me. And we learned last week that Abel's offering was acceptable to God and Cain's was not. And that Cain and his anger and his bitterness and his frustration at God ended up killing his brother. Chapter 5 tells us that Adam lived a long life. In fact, he lived 930 years. And as he lived 800 years, he, he fathered other sons and daughters. That's important to keep in mind that Cain and Abel were not the only two children that they had. Uh, we would learn later on that Seth enters the picture, but he had other sons and daughters. That's important, actually, when we understand the passage. And I want to pick up kind of where we left off, and what I want to say is this. I've entitled the message, is Not Fair, and that's really kind of from something that Cain says, but as I was reading the passage, what really was being driven home to me from this passage and reflecting on what we've learned already from Genesis is that really what we see in this passage is less about Cain and more about God. What I mean by that is that I was, as I was reading, I was just constantly reminded of the fact that God is gracious and merciful. And I, I, maybe I wanted to to be reminded of that. Maybe I needed to be reminded of that. It's easy to kind of focus on the negative aspect of Cain, and, 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 and there's reasons why we would look at that, but I think sometimes we just need to focus a little bit on God's grace. And so we're going to do that today um, as we work through this passage. I'm just going to read all of the verses from 9 to 16, and we'll just kind of refresh ourselves about what's going on here, and then really from point one, we're going to look at Cain. From point two, we're going to look at David. 
And I'll tell you why I want to look at David for a minute. And then the last point, I want us to actually jump to Titus chapter 2. And I hope that you'll be able to kind of track with me my thinking. But it says this, we learned that Abel was invited out to the field by Cain, and Cain kills him. I don't know if he beats him to death. I don't know if he stabs him. It doesn't really say, it says that he shed his blood. So we know that it was a violent death. It was a murder. And in verse 9, it says this, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I think right off the bat, before I continue reading, is that we see that God works with Cain the way that he worked with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve sinned. And God says, Hey, Adam and Eve, where are you? It's not that God didn't know. It's that God's giving them an opportunity to own up to what they did. Confess their sin. Repent of it. Come to God. Seek forgiveness. God comes to Cain and says, hey, Cain, where's your brother? Not that he doesn't know what's going on, but he's given Cain an opportunity here. A very important opportunity. We see Cain is very different than Adam and Eve, though they kind of tried to do some blame shifting and stuff. Uh, Their response was different even than Cain's. Cain says this, I don't know. We have the very first bold-faced lie by a human being to God recorded in Scripture. I don't know where he is. He goes on, am I my brother's guardian? Shows off his defiance here. And then he said, then he said God said, what have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed alienated from the ground that opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood that you have shed. If you work the ground, it will never again for you give you, excuse me, its yield. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. But Cain answered the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Since you are banishing me today from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence and become a restless wanderer on the earth, whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord replied to him, in that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is not quite the end of Cain's story, but it's the next part of Cain's story. God comes and confronts Cain, gives Cain an opportunity to admit what he's done, recognize it for what it is. It's a grievous sin against God. He took his own brother's life, and yet we see right off the bat that Cain will not acknowledge his sin. He will not confess it to God. He will not submit to God. He lies to God's face. He defies God by saying, what, am I his guardian? He certainly wasn't his guardian. He was his murderer. And then God pronounces judgment on him. He passes sentence on Cain because of his sin. And yet in the midst of this, the first thing that we see is that God is gracious and merciful to sinful, defiant people. Well, How do we see that in this passage? I mean, it's pretty easy to see that Cain is defiant and sinful. He rails against God. We learned last week that he was furious. It's it's like he shook his fist at God. He was was just 
enraged at the fact that God would not recognize his offering, but recognize his brother's offering. But we continue to see that by him lying to God. I don't know where my brother is. Yes, you do. You're the one that by your hands, your brother was murdered. You're the one that shed your own brother's blood. And you're sitting here responding to God by saying, I I don't know where he is. And then turning around and saying, is it really my responsibility to look after my brother? When he knew full well and so did God that he didn't look after his brother at all. And so as he continues to maintain his rebellion against God, God passes judgment on him. God meets out justice. The phrase, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground, really carries with it the idea that God's saying, your brother's blood, your, the ground, the, the, the blood of your brother in the ground is really just crying out for justice, imploring me to execute justice here, to deal with your sin. Later on, we will learn in Genesis chapter 9 that God establishes the punishment if you murder somebody. He lays it out for Noah that if someone sheds a man's blood, then his blood must be shed. It's the idea of capital punishment. This was God's standard because God values life so much that God actually sets this standard for Noah and says, look, if somebody is murdered, then that person needs to be executed in justice. God could have done that here. God could have said, you know what, Cain, because you murdered your brother, your life is forfeit. And yet, that's not what God does. God shows mercy to Cain in the fact that he curses him in the sense that he is now alienated from the ground that he once enjoyed as a farmer. He would go out and he would farm He would sow seed, he would grow crops, and he clearly was good at it because he had produce that he offered in sacrifice to God. And now his punishment is is that no matter how hard he tries as a farmer, he will never be able to produce a crop. And he's going to be forced to wander around scavenging for food. Trust me, that was a heavy punishment. It was, it was a severe punishment in, in a sense from a human perspective. It certainly was extremely difficult on Cain. Cain recognizes it to some extent, but it certainly wasn't the punishment that he could have received. God still shows mercy to Cain. And yet in the midst of that, Cain doesn't recognize that He doesn't recognize that God could have been even more severe than that. What does he say? But he answered, oh, my punishment is too great for me to bear. Oh, this isn't fair. Instead of getting what he could have gotten, this is what he received as punishment from the Lord, and it's, God, it's too hard. I can't handle it. Then he goes on, since you've banished me from the face of the earth, and I must hide from your presence become a restless wanderer, whoever finds me will kill me. The reason why I talked about the fact that there's periods of time that are passing here, that the reason why I brought up that Adam and Eve have, have other sons and daughters is because 
if we don't keep that in mind, then that statement that, that, that Cain makes might sound kind of crazy. Whoever finds me, who else is going to find me? Adam and Eve. Abel's not around. Isn't there just three people? But if Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters, and those sons and daughters had sons and daughters, we begin to see that the world's population is beginning to grow. And since those are actually a part of all the same family, it's easy to think that maybe one of those family members isn't too impressed with Cain killing their brother. And so it's pretty common sense for him to say, look, somebody's going to probably seek me out and take my life because I killed my brother. And so what does God do? God actually shows how gracious he is to Cain here. I want you to see it. It says this, Then the Lord replied, In that case, whoever kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. So right off the bat, he says, Look, if somebody does try to kill you, seven times my vengeance is going to be on them. I don't know what that looks like. I don't want to know what that looks like. But not only that, it says God placed a mark on Cain that whoever found him would not kill him. Most of us, when we read that, and maybe we've even been taught this, we kind of think it's like, uh, maybe you've never read Nathaniel Hawthorne's book, The, The Scarlet Letter. I'm pretty sure it was Hawthorne. It's been a while since I read that. That was like back in college days. But there was this time in history where when somebody committed a sin in their society, that oftentimes they had a a scarlet letter put on them where they had an identifying mark to point out and shame them for the sin that they committed. Whether that was like if they committed adultery and now they had this big bright red A sewn on their clothing so everybody knew they were an adulterer. Or if it was, you know, a thief, they would be, you know, the T or whatever. This isn't, we sometimes think that that's the mark that God puts on Cain. We, we don't know what the mark is that God put on Cain. It was identifying mark somehow. But it wasn't to point out that he was a murderer. It was actually a mark that protected him. It says he placed a mark on Cain so that whoever found him would not kill him. Now maybe it did identify Cain's sin, but we don't know that and we're not told that. What we do know from this passage is that God was gracious to Cain by putting a mark on him so that if anybody found him, they would not take his life. One might argue that that only made Cain's punishment that much more unbearable because he just continued to wander for the rest of his life and never was able to settle anywhere. We discover that he actually ends up doing that. He does settle. But he wanders from from God's presence. But what's interesting is that verse 16 tells us that Cain's the one that went out from God's presence. There's an indication here that he never returns to God. He never comes back. He never tries to confess his sin and be right with God. He leaves God's presence and wanders. No doubt, Cain was a sinful, sinful person. And yet God was still gracious and merciful to him. Now, you might argue that his gracious mark was common grace. It wasn't necessarily saving grace. But I believe that God had already revealed to Cain how it was that he could be made right with God. That he was given that opportunity to confess his sin and repent of it. And to be able to stay in the presence of God, but he was unwilling to do that. 
But what it makes me think of is another murderer in Scripture. As I was reading about Cain, I got, couldn't help but think about King David, another murderer in Scripture. And I'm going to encourage you to flip over to Psalm 51 with me. Because we see already that God is gracious and merciful to sinful, defiant, rebellious people, but God's grace brings salvation to humble, repentant people of faith. David, too, was a murderer. David was also an adulterer. And what we know from Psalm 51 is this. This is, Psalms, this is David's psalm or prayer to God after being confronted about his sin. See, David was hanging around the palace when he should have been out on the battlefield. Looks out his window, sees Bathsheba bathing on the roof of her house. Lusts after this woman, decides that he's going to call for her and ends up having an intimate relationship with her. She was married to another man. One of David's soldiers and David tries to scheme in such a way to make it seem like or look like it was this guy's child because she becomes pregnant. That scheme doesn't work, so what David does is puts him on the front lines of the battle and the most heated part of the battle and ends up having this guy essentially killed. He gets killed in battle, but God, or David put him there and essentially murders her husband and then takes her as his wife and has sinned in grievous ways. And God brings Nathan, the prophet, to David. And Nathan tells David a story that really illustrates the guilt of David. And David hears the story, which is supposedly about another man, and David says, this guy needs to be executed because of his sin. And Nathan says, you're the man. And in Psalm 51, we see, as David's been confronted with his sin, his response to God. Like Cain, God confronted David about his murder and his adultery. There are consequences to that sin. The baby that was to be born is going to die. It's going to be ongoing consequences that linger for the rest of David's life from this particular sin. But this is David's response. He says this, Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love, according to your abundant compassion. Blot out my rebellion Completely wash away my guilt and cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion and my sin is always before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are righteous when you pass sentence. You are blameless when you judge. Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. David understood that God was a gracious God. David would have heard and understood that the, the promised one, the Messiah, was going to come and was going to bring salvation to those who would believe. David was expecting that one to come someday. God knew that 
or David knew that God was gracious. The New American Commentary describes God's grace this way. God's grace towards us is based solely on his love. David understood that. He says, be gracious to me, God, according to your faithful love. And totally in, excuse me, and our total inability to meet God's standards. David understood that as well when he says, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. He understood that he was rebellious against God, that he sinned against God. David knew this. He was totally unable to meet God's standards. New American Commentary goes on to say, God's grace is a gift we do not deserve and cannot earn. We read couple weeks ago, just in the midst of our song time, these verses from Romans 5, when we were talking about the sin that came through Adam. Verse 12, it says, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death spread to all people because all sinned. David understood this. But I love verse 15. It says, but the gift is not like the trespass, for if By the one man's trespass, many died. How much more have the grace of God and the gift which comes through the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflowed to many? The gift isn't like the trespass. God's grace is a gift that we do not deserve and cannot earn. And David was appealing to God as a gracious, forgiving God. David understands his sinfulness before God. He implores God to forgive him. He goes on, he says, Surely you desire integrity in the inner self, and you teach me wisdom deep within. Purify me with hyssop, that I may be washed clean, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Turn your face away from my sin and blot out my guilt." Create, God, create a clean heart for me and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence or take away your Holy Spirit from me. Restore the joy of my salvation to me and sustain me by giving me a willing spirit. I don't know if David was actually thinking about Cain when he says, don't banish me from your presence. But he didn't want to not experience the presence of God in his life. He longed to experience the forgiveness of sin that only comes through a gracious God. God's grace brings salvation to the humble and repentant people of faith. Thirdly, I want us to see that this grace not only saves, but also shapes our lives in ways that please God. I'm going to ask you to turn over to Titus chapter 2. I said this in in the first service, and I kind of wondered whether or not people thought I was crazy. I said that sometimes we we misunderstand God's grace. We sometimes use it as a license to just continue to live the way that we want. And I noticed some looks on people's faces like, who thinks that? Well, clearly some people do. Some believers did. Some people that Paul was instructing thought so struggled with this concept. And maybe sometimes if we were honest, we would say maybe we've actually struggled with this a little bit. Because Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, should we continue in sin that grace may multiply? And he says, absolutely not. If we've died to sin, how can we continue to live in it any longer? So, 
Paul had to deal with this idea that sometimes people misunderstood the grace of God or they took advantage of it, they, they abused it. And that's not the way it should be. God is gracious in providing salvation through Jesus Christ. He's gracious to us. It's a gift that we don't deserve, that we cannot earn, but we can't abuse the grace of God. And Timothy actually, or excuse me, Titus actually talks about this. When Paul writes to Titus, he talks about it in verse 11. He says, for the grace of God has, a, has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And this is this instructing us to deny godlessness and worldly lusts and to live in a sensible, righteous, and godly way in this present age. I think it's important for us to understand that if we have a true understanding of God's grace, it stirs us to deny and live. Deny godlessness and worldly lusts and live righteously and soberly and holy lives. God's grace is active and powerful. It's not passive. It's not just something that we receive and then it's done. It's not just grace that is restricted to our justification, being made right with God, but it continues to operate in our sanctification. It's saving faith, but it's sanctifying grace. And Titus is talking about that. He says, this grace of God that brings salvation for those of us who have trusted Christ as our Savior, who have experienced the grace of God, that same grace is working in our lives to make us more like Christ. He says, it brings salvation for all people, but this grace instructs us. It instructs us to say no to godlessness and worldly lusts. But it says, it instructs us to say yes, so to speak, to living sensibly, righteously, godly, today, in this age, while we live. It's a sanctifying grace. It says this, he says, while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he concludes this section by saying, Jesus, he gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to cleanse for himself a people of his own possession, eager to do good works. So I was thinking about the idea of redeem, because really it's, it's buying us back from the slave market of sin. That's one of the concepts that goes with redeeming. I thought of a story, and I don't know if it's actually true to Abraham Lincoln, but anyway, the story goes that Abraham Lincoln, early in his adult life, of course, didn't agree with slavery, and yet it was a commonplace thing in his day. And he wasn't president at this point. He didn't push for the abolition of straight slavery, and in his community, he went down to the slave market like all of, well, so many other white men that were looking to buy slaves, and his desire was to buy a slave to free that slave. And there was a, a young um, African-American girl on the, on the block, and he bid for her, and he wrestled with the fact that 
he would be perceived like all the other slave buyers there. Because he knew that those other ones very well could have been buying this young black girl because they were going to abuse her. And yet he bid and he bid and he won the bid. And he bought that slave off the slave market. And as he was walking home with her, he said, you're free to go. And the story goes that she didn't really understand that. She's like, well, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you're free. You can, you can go. You, can, you don't have to work for me. You don't have to stay with me. You're, you're free. I bought you from the slave market to free you. And, of course, the story goes on, and this is where I make the illustration might fall down a little bit because she says, so I'm free to do anything I want to do? He said, yep. I'm, you mean I'm free to be anything I want to be? Yep. And then she thanked him and hugged him and she went off. I thought, well, God doesn't free us and redeem us so that we can be anything we want to be or do anything we want to do. But he does buy us off the slave market of sin so that we can live the way that he wants us to live, and that is living in freedom. Freedom isn't doing whatever I want to do. Freedom is doing what God wants me to do. Being saved from my sin enables me to be everything that God wants me to be, not everything I want to be. And Paul saying to Titus, this is what the grace of God does. It instructs us. It instructs us to say no to these things and to live the way that God calls us to live. Some other things that grace does, and I just want to leave it with this. Grace supports in times of need. Ever thought about that? God's grace supports you in times of need. Something that God's grace does. Second Corinthians twelve nine says that. God's grace provides the strength and endurance that we need. It's not me pulling me up by my bootstraps and pressing on. It's the grace and strength or the strength and endurance that God gives through his grace. First Corinthians fifteen ten says that. God's grace causes thanksgiving to grow. Second Corinthians four fifteen. I want you to think about that. that. That's something that God's grace does in our lives. Causes thanksgiving to grow. I ask myself the question, if I'm not very thankful, am I really understanding God's grace then? Is God's grace active in my life if I'm not very thankful? God's grace impacts our everyday conversations. If that doesn't stop us up, we probably should think about that for a little bit. How many times have you had a conversation with somebody where they pointed out that you're not very gracious in your words? That's me. I had that happen a lot. Still working on it. But God's grace impacts our daily conversations. And lastly, and this is not an exhaustive list, but God's grace enables Christians to live holy and godly lives. See, it's not just a saving grace, it's a sanctifying grace. See, God's gracious and merciful to sinful, defiant people. God's grace brings salvation to humble and repentant people of faith, and God's grace not only saves us, but also shapes the way our lives in ways that we can please God. I don't know about you, but it's important for us to be reminded that God is a gracious God. We are. 
If you're here this morning and you haven't put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God is gracious to you in allowing you to hear this message today so that you can repent of your sin and trust Christ to save you. He wants to buy you from the slave market of sin and set you free. Would you trust him today? Christian, have you maybe not thought about God's grace in the ways that we talked about today? Maybe we need to rethink what God's grace really means, what it really is. And let God do a work in our lives. Mm-hmm.